Mark chapter 1. And we're going to begin in verse 35. In the morning, Jesus rose up a great while before day, and he went out and departed into a solitary place. And there he prayed. Simon, that's Peter, and they that were with him followed after Jesus. And when they found Jesus, they said to him, All men seek for you. He said to them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. And he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee, and cast out devils or demons. And there came a leper to him, begging him, kneeling down to him, and saying to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand, and touched him, and said to him, I will be clean. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him, and he was cleansed. And he straightly charged him, and, and forthwith, or immediately, sent him away. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to any man, but go your way, show yourself to the priests, and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. But he went out and began to publish it much, and blaze it abroad the matter. He just couldn't keep his mouth shut. Insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city, and was without in desert places, and they came to him from every quarter. And he came, uh, and again he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he had, it says he was in the house, it just means he came home. Jesus was at his house. And, and straightway, or immediately, many were gathered together inasmuch as there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they came to him, bringing one of the sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh to him for the press, or the, the crowd was so large, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the sick of the palsy, Son, your sins are forgiven. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there, reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason these things in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say this to the sick of the palsy, your sins are forgiven, or to say, Arise, take up your bed, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the sick of the palsy, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go away to your house. And immediately he rose and took up the bed and went forth before them all, insomuch as they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you because you have the answers for life. There's no other answer. There's no other solution, Lord. But to come to Christ, man is searching for answers, looking for an answer, what to do and where to go. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to find our answer in Christ. Help us all to see that the real healing is in Jesus alone. There are many in this world looking to fill the void in their hearts with other things, worldly things. Help us, Lord, to be humble, to humble ourselves in your sight that you may lift us up. This is the way of the Christian. So we thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for making us whole from sin.
for cleansing us from its presence, its power. It's not its presence, we get that later, but cleansing us from its power over us. Thank you for doing that. And I pray today that we would leave here rejoicing and, and maybe even blazing it abroad that you are in the house, that others would bring people here who need to be healed. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that pastors do, sometimes deacons do, is visit people in the hospital. If your life has ever taken a turn for the worse, or if you're having a baby, that's a turn for the better, you'll probably catch me over at the hospital. Now, most of the hospitals around here are quite large. Uh, some are very large. You go over to Duke and UNC. Sometimes you have to walk, it seems like, a mile just to get to the hospital from the parking deck. But even the smaller hospitals are big, like Rex or Western Wake, and they all have these maps inside, or they hand you a map when you walk in so you can figure out how many stairs you have to go in order to reach where you're headed. Now, over at Duke, you park in the parking deck, you walk under the roads and buildings for about a half a mile. I've made that trek many times. You get to kind of a hub of escalators, and then you pick which floor you need to go to, and then you begin your search. Personally, when I need help, I go to the VA hospital in Durham, and it has multiple departments on many floors, and it can be kind of confusing. You, you walk in a hospital, and you've got an ER, you have an ICU, you have a cardiology, geriatrics, gastroenterology, pediatrics, neurology, oncology, surgery, urology, psychology, and I've left some out. That's an incomplete list. And of course, in that hospital with all these different departments is an army of doctors and nurses, all of those people with their advanced degrees in education running around trying to help heal you so they can charge you money and pay back those massive student loans that they took out to be able to get those degrees. It's kind of weird to think about, but Jesus was a one-man walking hospital. I mean, he did geriatrics and pediatrics, young and old, and sometimes he did it at the same time. He, he was a, a neurologist fixing people's brains, Sometimes an oncologist, a psychologist, and sometimes he did all those things in the same person. His surgery, while internal, was mostly external. He would just put his hands on someone, and that did the trick. In fact, Jesus did things you can't even get at the hospital. He came after people died, and, he, and don't call the undertaker just yet if Jesus is coming to town because Jesus raised the dead. But for all of this, these were the least of his concerns. I don't mean Jesus wasn't concerned about people's bodies. Well, he loved people, and that meant caring for the sick. But he really loved people's souls. He cared for their souls like no one else. And that means that while he healed the sick, his main task was to preach. Jesus' message, the point of the gospel, is that there is healing in Christ, that he is the healer of souls. When someone comes to Jesus, he has his soul healed. His brokenness is restored. His life renewed. Some young adults, particularly in our Christian colleges, have a passion today. They like to talk about being broken. Friends, broken people come to Jesus for healing, for restoration, 
But they don't leave Jesus broken. Jesus is the healer of the broken. He actually puts people back together again. The kind of, all of this kind of runs counter to the popular brokenness stories. I was all over the internet this week reading some of these. It's all over the blogosphere. And usually these stories focus on some Old Testament text where someone recognizes the gravity of his being estranged from God. I'm not saying you should ignore your sin or even ignore the seriousness of your sin. But what I think when people focus on themselves other than Christ, well, that kind of person may conclude he's broken when he's really not. One writer actually said this, biblical brokenness is something to be pursued, not avoided. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> something to be embraced and not something from which and not something from which you need healing. So you just remain broken all the time. And I would I would argue rather brokenness is something that we have before we come to Christ. But after coming to him we can say, "Well, I was broken by sin, but Jesus healed me from that brokenness." As I read through the various websites and sermons, where very well-intentioned people wrote about brokenness, uh, what I found was confusion about brokenness as it relates to believers and unbelievers. And I won't go through every text now, but I will say that those Old Testament passages on brokenness are so popular today that they are typically applied to believers. I, when I was a little boy, we used to sing the song, Lord Jesus, I want to be perfectly whole. I want you forever to live in my soul. Break down every idol, cast out every foe. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. That's a great gospel song. But, but once you come to Christ, you are made whole. You are healed. Have you ever thought through the words of Newton's amazing grace? He, he said, I was lost. But now I'm found. Was blind. But now I see. I was broken. That's what he says. Before I was in Christ, I was broken. He was a slaver. He was a vile, wicked man, profane and blasphemous with his words. But he came to Christ and he was healed. And he was made whole. So just so I'm clear, I, I'm not saying you shouldn't be humble or meek. That's part of a life of a Christian. I totally believe that. And I don't think humility, though, is the same as brokenness. We all should be humble. But brokenness is something indicative of you, your life before the gospel. After the gospel, the truth of my relationship with God is that I'm healed. I want to think through this for just a little bit. Let's think through our lives before the gospel. This is point number one. Man is broken because of the effects of sin. Literally, sin has broken his body. I'll say it this way. Satan hurts people. And you see this in verse 39. In chapter 1, Jesus was out casting out demons. There is a lie that man believes that Satan is just not very bad. He's not a bad guy. And you see this lie increasing in our culture. In fact, it crossed my mind this morning. That if we said Jesus was in the house, that you could come to College Park and see Jesus, and we, and we told everybody we met that that was true, 
We'd have maybe a few people show up, but boy, I wonder how many people would come if we said Satan was going to be here. Probably have a pretty big crowd for that, don't you think? Uh, you look and read the news, and I read widely, lots of different news sources, and you see on people's faces all the time, sometimes even through their own self-disfigurement. I'm talking about radical tattooing and cutting and marking people actually harming their bodies, showing hatred for their bodies. Let me tell you something. That's satanic. That's the devil. There are TV shows now in media that show Satan. It's, it, evil is popular. Music sometimes popularizes evil. And there's even print media that desensitizes people to evil things. Scripture teaches that Satan wants to murder people. He's a liar and a murderer, and demon-possessed people, those are unbelievers, are being hurt by him. That still goes on, even in our country. And Jesus cast them out. You see, Jesus is an enemy of the devil. Uh, they're not brothers. They're, they're not related. Jesus is an uncreated God, Jehovah of the Old Testament, the triune God, part of the tri triunity of God. The devil's a created angel who hates God. And Jesus has authority over all created things. And Satan hurts people and he breaks people's bodies. Sin breaks people's bodies. Sin causes physical weakness. There came, verse 40, a leper to him saying, if you will, you can make me clean. Leprosy is a horrible disease. I think in Scripture it's a metaphor for sin because it was a rottenness in the body, just like sin is a rottenness in the soul. Leprosy was a disease for which there was no cure, and you would see the awful marks of leprosy on people's bodies as their appendages, their limbs would fall off, would literally rot on them as they lived. They were dying. And Jesus was the only hope for someone like that. These people were cast out of society. In fact, they were treated worse than anyone else. And you have here Satan hurting people and sin hurting people. And let me tell you something about hurting people. They become desperate. They, they're, they're desperate for some answers. And this is why they turn to all sorts of weird things. Pagan arts and rituals. If I could only get a certain rock and rub it. I'm not making that up. This is what they do. They're desperate. You see in verse 40, the leper came to Jesus, begging him, kneeling down before him. That, that's, he's truly begging. If you... Can, would just say the word, I could be clean. He pleads, he's on his knees, please help me, please, I beg you, I have nowhere else to go. And the lame man's friends, in chapter 2, they took extraordinary measures. They tear off the roof of Jesus' house. You know, I, I kind of think Jesus is standing there and going, well, that's not good. I mean, nobody wants to have their roof torn off. 
Here comes this person down on a stretcher with some ropes. And he's now laying at Jesus' feet. My friends, that's an act of desperation. This is what sin and Satan does. It breaks people. It breaks them physically. It breaks them mentally. It shatters them emotionally and utterly destroys them physically. Satan is doing that today, and he's doing it all over our county, our cities, our county, our state, our, our nation, our world. Everywhere you go, people are being destroyed by Satan, and this is what sin does. Why do, why do let me say, why does anyone ever think sin's a good idea? It's self-harm. Why do we treat sin like some people treat COVID? I, I mean, I, I think, you know, people, COVID came and all of a sudden we, you know, closed down all the businesses. People are six feet apart or further. The one guy walked in and he had this, I saw a picture of this. He walked into a, a, a Walmart wearing some sort of inner tube and it had this huge ring around him blown up. I mean, the guy looked nuts, right? But he just didn't want anybody to be around him. I don't know how he got down the aisles. How do you even reach? Because this inner tube was all around him. Don't get near me. We had masks, masks, masks. And you saw people wearing gas masks and all sorts, like the, the kind of, you know, almost the kind of thing people would wear to go underwater when they, when, when they were, um, when they were going under, under seas. At the beginning. You remember these things? They had a little hole in the front. They're made of metal. I mean, people were so absolutely terrified. Let me tell you something, friends. That's, there's kind of a healthy terror of sin. And you look at those people and you say, well, that guy's nuts. Look at that fellow over there. He's crazy. He's, he's, going, he's going way overboard. It's not that serious. Let me tell you something, friends. Sin's serious. Why don't we take steps like that? And why don't we think of sin as the worst thing that can happen to us? I've often thought about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane looking into the cup. He says, he looked into a cup. It's a metaphorical cup. He says, I look into the cup and he says, if it be your will, may this cup pass from me. And, and so many evangelists have warped this text, unfortunately. So many preachers to say Jesus, who hated the idea of going through the punishment that was coming upon him, that the pain, and they'll go through all the beatings and the crown of thorns and the ripping and tearing of nerves, and it's just grotesque. Everybody sits there and kind of gets sick to their stomach while the guy's talking. Jesus wasn't talking about that at all. He was talking about becoming a sin bearer. Jesus is saying, I would rather have my body ripped apart than commit one sin. How many of us can say the same? And so here we are looking at the text and we can just say man is broken because of the effects of sin. You can look all over our culture and society and see this. People being destroyed. Do you know how angry people are? I was reading the news this morning. I uh, uh, turned on the news and kind of looked over the headlines and I, one story caught my eye. Last night, I don't watch Saturday Night Live, but last night... They opened their show with a game show. This is all a comedy sketch, you know, from New York City. They opened their show with a game show having to do with uh, how quickly will you snap? You know, when, when will your brain break? 
And, and, and the game show was simply, they had contestants up there and they would just read news stories from the last couple of weeks. And then, and then they would flip back to, and, and then the actors would, you know, crack up. One lady was chugging alcohol. I mean, just, it was terrible, right? And it just shows them breaking up. This is, and this is comedy. This is supposed to be funny. And I'm just telling you, that's the world we live in. We live in a world where people are just on the edge of cracking up. You, you get to a light, and if you, don't, if you don't go, the moment, in the millisecond, it turns green behind you. You know, I wasn't on my phone. I mean, I understand sometimes people are on their phones and not paying attention, light goes green, and you sit there. And you go, come on, okay, let's move along. You know, a little toot toot's fine, but, you know, they lay on the horn. Ready to snap. Sin is just breaking people. And if, and if a life before Christ is a broken life, then friends, here's the beauty of it. A life with Jesus is a healed life. You see, this is point number two. Jesus is the healer of bodies. He is the healer of souls. This is where you go to have your soul healed. Healing was a part of Jesus' ministry. It says here, he healed the leprous man, verse 41 of chapter 1. He was moved with emotion. He put forth his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him and he was cleansed. Now, verse 42 states here that he was emotional. The word in your text is compassion, and that's the word in most texts. Some modern translations have anger or he was indignant because the word here, the underlying Greek word, isn't super clear. And the word translated compassion or anger just means to feel it in your gut. And certainly there's compassion in your gut, but sometimes this idea of pity or compassion can also be anger in your gut. I think the NIV uses the word indignant. But it's just representative of emotion. When Jesus wept, when Lazarus died, it wasn't because Lazarus was in heaven. And it wasn't because he loved Lazarus and Lazarus was gone. Jesus didn't live on that earthly plane like we do. He just didn't. In fact, he would have been jealous of Lazarus. Jesus wept because he saw both the, the suffering of sin, the effects of sin on people's lives, and he was angry, I think, at the unbelief of people in what he could do and who he was. Remember what he said to the sisters, Mary and Martha? He, he, they, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And he, and he says to them, don't you, basically, don't you believe in me? Or don't you understand who I am? I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And they go, of course we believe in the resurrection of the dead. We believe that we'll spend eternity with you. We believe all that. We've heard your teachings. We believe that. Jesus is saying, no, I am the resurrection. And just to show you this, Lazarus, come out. Get up. And Lazarus is going, you know, putting down his fork up in heaven. You've got to be kidding me. I got to go back. I don't want to go back. Jesus wept because he hated the effects of sin on the lives of people and the unbelief of those around him. He's not frustrated at being interrupted. 
by the leprous man. He's teaching. There's the leprous man runs up, stops everything. Please heal me. He's not frustrated by that. Some modern scholars say Jesus is angry because he's being interrupted. Bart Ehrman over at Chapel Hill, he's one of the ones who holds that position. There's a lot of reasons for Jesus to be emotional here. He's emotional because he knows what Satan is doing to people. He's, he knows what the curse means for people. Leprosy is a horrific disease, and we can see the impact on this man's life. He sees all of this, and he's emotional. And I don't think there's anything wrong with us showing emotion at sin. I, I used to hear people say, you know, they write books, don't discipline your kids angry. Why not? You shouldn't, you shouldn't abuse your children. But I always wanted my children to know I am unhappy. I'm angry at your sin. And then, of course, while I was disciplining them, the Lord was disciplining me, saying, you do the same thing, you dirty rat. You know, going, yes, Lord, I know. But would you just leave me alone for a minute so I can take care of this and we can get back together on that. Okay. There should be an anger against sin. There should be an emotional response to sin. There's nothing wrong with that. It just destroys people, folks. And Jesus, who's the healer of bodies, he hated watching people being destroyed because of sin. And so he immediately rescued them from their condition. Jesus breaks the barrier of uncleanness. You know, you're not supposed to touch sick people. He wasn't supposed to touch leprous people. But this cleanness, uncleanness always goes one way. I actually read an article this week where a man was talking about a passage, not this text, but a different passage where Jesus heals a woman who was unclean. And he says, and I know everybody says the uncleanness goes one direction. It's Jesus. To, and I'm going, no, that is the answer. Don't write something else trying to make it something else. This is the answer. Jesus is God. The uncleanness always goes one direction. God can't become unclean from himself. That's crazy. So when Jesus touches somebody who is ceremonial unclean, he doesn't become unclean. That person becomes clean. And that's always the fact. That's always the case. And so the uncleanness goes one way with Jesus. Cleanliness goes out from him. And he cleanses this man's body. It's true cleansing. And I love the fact that cleansing is the idea here. He's cleaning him up. And almost maybe a metaphor for what God is doing in our hearts spiritually when we come to him by faith in the gospel. When we come to him for salvation, he's actually cleaning us up. That's why we baptize. It's an image of water washing away the profane and dirty things. Jesus does that with his blood. He washes away our sinfulness. That's why we sing a gospel song once in a while. Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Would you be clean from your burden of sin? Yeah. Would you be washed in his blood? You come to Jesus and you get cleansed, folks. It's the most beautiful truth. Not only does he cleanse this man's body, but he healed. Notice the lame man. He heals him too. It's not a cleansing in the sense that he had leprosy, this horrible virus, this sickness, but the lame man can't walk. His, his muscles and bones don't work. 
And he says here in chapter 2 and verse 11, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. He says to the, the man who's leprous, I will be clean. He touches him. He says to the man who's lame, Arise and get up and go home. Here we have three parts of a, a well, it's a three command sequence. Get up, get up, get your pack, and go home. <laughs> you couldn't say that to lame people. You know, get up. Hey, buddy. Don't get stay down there. Kick the guy a little bit. Get up. The man moves immediately. Verse 12, the healing is in a flash of time and he begins to obey Jesus' commands. He gets up, he picks up his bedroll and he begins to move around. And of course, the healing is consequential because it amazes the crowd. It says they glorified Jehovah. They glorified God in heaven. I think of the healing of Peter and John with the lame man at the temple in Acts 3. It's so similar because that man rolls up his bedroll. He begins leaping and praising God as he arises up. He heals this man. Do, do you understand who Jesus was? Who Jesus is? Jesus is the one who heals people. And this healing changed his life. Before he was healed, he could not have a normal life. Now he's changed. It changes his lifestyle. Before, he's, when he's lame, he can't work. Now he can work. Probably he was unmarried. Now he can marry. His relationship to God changes. He can enter into the temple finally. All the lame people, because of some misunderstanding of Old Testament law, the, the Jews wouldn't let anybody who was lame come into the temple. He couldn't enter the temple. And we see here Jesus had already forgiven his sins. His life's changed. Jesus is doing all these things. He's healing people. But friends, all of that, and as much as we put an emphasis on that, because the story, you just kind of go, wow, that's the part we don't see today. That's the part we gravitate to. That's the part we all go, wow. That's the wow factor. What Jesus was doing the most was not healing people. Preaching was his primary ministry. As important as healing was, his preaching was primary. And this is why he considered prayer so important. This is why the story starts with Jesus getting up before sunrise and going out to a place for prayer. I don't think he gets up <clears throat> because he wants to be sleepy. Jesus isn't thinking, okay, what time do I have to get up in order to be really sleepy so I can know that I really sacrificed today to be able to serve God? I actually think it's because he wanted solitude. I mean, when daylight hit, everybody wanted to be with him. And so he had no time for himself. So he gets up when nobody else is stirring. Not even the mouse in the Christmas poem. Nothing's stirring, right? He, anticipation of the solitude, he leaves his house and he goes into a quiet place and he prays because he wants to spend time with the Father. See, because his preaching is so important. His preaching is so important. And this is the connection that comes with godliness. Friends, it's not drudgery to pray. And I confess that I do not always take time that I should myself to pray. I think we all kind of have that burden. It's a privilege to come before the Father. It's a privilege on virtue, by virtue of what Jesus has done in his name to come before the Father and bring our concerns and our burdens in intercessory prayer for others, to pray for them. And to go down through that list of prayer requests on Slack and just pray for each other. It's a blessing to do that. It's not drudgery. It's a necessity to life. I think you could almost see it like this. It, Jesus would rather not sleep if he could pray. 
It, it, this kind of, of passion in us should be like hunger. It should dominate our minds like thirst. And I think it's there because we see his preaching ministry's primary. You know, Jesus isn't praying so he has the power to heal people. He's praying because he wants to spend time with the Father. It's because he loves the Father so much. It's a necessity to life. And then this is why he preached to the crowd of hurting people. You see, look at chapter 2 and verse 1. He entered into Capernaum after some days. It was noise that he had come home. And immediately many were gathered together in so much as there was no room to receive them, not so much as about the door. They couldn't even get in the house. I mean, they broke all the fire codes, right? And it says he healed them. No. What does it say? He preached the word to them. After chapter 1, the expectation is, is that Jesus is here to heal. But in verse 14, we know that's not true because it says Jesus came preaching. And there are three healing events in chapter 1. The demon-possessed man, between verses 23 and 34, the demon-possessed man, Peter's mother-in-law who was sick of a fever, and the sick in the village where he was. But we see here in verse 38, the real reason Jesus is there is to preach the gospel. And his ministry overlaps the ministry of John the Baptist. So he, Jesus is preaching and baptizing people. John chapter 4 and verse 1 says he's actually making more disciples than John was making. He's actually preaching. He says plainly, this is why I'm here. I, I need to do this. This is why I'm here. Healing said Jesus apart from John. John wasn't healing people. Jesus is healing people. But his preaching ministry is very similar. John is calling people to repentance. Calling them back to covenant living in the Old Testament sense of the word. But Jesus, because he's Messiah, is preaching the kingdom. The kingdom is here. It's near. It's at the doors. But they're both preaching. And they're both baptizing. And Jesus preaches to people who were there for healing. In fact, they were there for physical healing. The crowd is huge. The line is long. And the lame man, well, he has to get in a different way. He's got to break up the roof. And you just expect, if you read this story without really reading it, that Jesus is there to heal people. But that's not why he's there. So when all this is taking place and all these people are crushing Jesus, they're there, and instead of just healing everybody, what's he doing? He's preaching the word to them. Because Jesus knows something, friends, that we have to be reminded of all the time. Our spiritual well-being is much more important than our physical well-being. When my dad was pastoring in Flat Rock, he's a retired pastor now, when he was pastoring in Flat Rock, the church that he took was really small at the time. They had one full-time minister, um, a man who I believe was an unbeliever, was the youth pastor of the church, he was in the, and the choir director, they had no choir, but the choir director, and the song leader. And, I, and, I, and I'm fully convinced the man was an unbeliever. And after a couple of years of just kind of fighting and butting heads with this guy, you know, he and I started talking, and I'm asking him a question. Do you think this man's actually a believer? And, and in the course of the conversation, it came up the idea, well, maybe what, what you need to do is just sit down with him and talk through what's your role here, what's your job. Maybe you could lay out for some, some things he's supposed to do. And one of the reasons for that was this. Uh, the way that the church had been structured before my dad got there was his staff, of which this man was the only staff member, he got paid a full-time salary. 
staff, they were allowed two Sundays off a year. And he was an artsy guy. He was involved in the playhouse, the Flat Rock Playhouse there in East Flat Rock. And so he would take his two Sundays off a year and he would go and help work at the theater. That's what he did with his two Sundays off. His two Sundays off were two Sundays away from God. Now let me just tell you, that makes me scratch my head just a bit. Doesn't it make you scratch your head just a bit? A day off is a day for rest, but it's not a day off of rest from God. How weird do we sometimes see Christians twist this idea, a day of rest from secular work, and we take it to rest from God? I've actually had Christian people say it's a day of rest, which for them means entertainment. No, it's a day of rest from secular work. So I can spend a whole day with the Lord. That's the blessing of it. The slaves of the New Testament, they couldn't do that because they were slaves. But if you're a free man, of which we all are, we, we set our own schedule. I had a guy come to me once when I was early in ministry here. He needed a job, and he said, Pastor, I think I have a great opportunity for a job. I'm so excited. Let me tell you about it. I said, well, let's go back in this room, and you can tell me about it. He said, it's great. And, and uh, he told me all about the job, and I said, wonderful. Now, what would your hours be? And he said, well, I go into work every Friday night, and I get off on Saturday, Sunday night. And I said, it's a full-time job? He said, yeah, I work those three days and it comes to almost 40 hours and it's a full-time job. And I said, no, let me see if I get this right. So you would never come to church again. And he stopped and he, I haven't thought about that. You're just never going to go to church ever again the rest of your life? He said, uh, I don't think I can take that job. I don't think you can either. You need a job, yes. The Lord will provide you a job, but he's not providing you this job. This is a temptation. I would avoid it. I'd run. He did turn the job down. That was a hard thing for him to do. But my friends, a day off is not a day of rest. It's a day to go out and be with God. And that's exactly what's happening here. These people want to be with Jesus. And Jesus knows this. the biggest problem they have is they have sin. Come to me. I'll give you rest. I will give you rest from sin. I'll take... You take my yoke upon you. You learn of me. Because I'll, I'll help you from the thing that's actually breaking you. And so Jesus is preaching to them. These people who long for physical healing. But he, know, he did that because he knew their biggest problem was sin. Listen, people have problems in their finances. People have problems in their marriages. People have problems in their relationship with other people. They have emotional problems. They have mental problems. They have all sorts of problems. And I'm going to tell you the answer is the same in every single case. It's Jesus. All the time. Every time. That's why as a counselor, I have the answer. It's really a quite a wonderful thing. Someone comes into my office. What do I need, pastor? You need Jesus. I don't say it like that, but that's what I'm saying. Next time you come for counseling, you'll say, what's he really saying? You need Jesus. Even Christians need Jesus, not in the salvation sense, but we need Jesus. And this is why Jesus prioritized the forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. When he saw their faith, he said to the sick of the palsy, Son, your sins are forgiven. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there reasoning in this heart, This man is blasphemous. Who could forgive sins but God only? Well, Jesus knows what's in their hearts, and he says, So... 
What do you think? Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk to a lame man? So that you may know that I have power on earth to forgive sins. <laughs> get up and walk. Now he forgives this man's sin because of faith. It says he saw their faith. And forgiveness of sin always has a basis in acceptance of Jesus' message. It's not arbitrary. So Jesus was preaching a message and it says saw their faith. And I don't think it's just faith that he had the power to heal this man. It was actually faith in him. He saw their faith. They were listening to his preaching. They're responding to his preaching. And this produces powerful responses because when we listen to preaching of God's word, it changes lives. It changed this man's life. He was now forgiven by God. Can I tell you something? That's assurance, folks. If God says to you verbally in front of you, your sins are forgiven, there you go. You know, I have to go and take a couple of other steps. I have to show from Scripture that God says this is the means by which a person's sins are forgiven. And then you walk through what it means for your sins to be forgiven. And then you have to undo all of the bad preaching or all of the bad theology where I have to get forgiveness over and over and over and over again. Instead, I show my sins are forgiven. And once you kind of get that, then you can go, oh, but this man doesn't have that problem because Jesus said right to him, hey, you're, hey, buddy, your sins are forgiven you. And it makes the scribes really angry. It says they're reasoning in their hearts. And what, what did they concluded? That Jesus was a blasphemer, which literally means Jesus was blaspheming against himself, which they didn't understand. That's what they meant, but that's what they're thinking. Who can forgive sins but God? There's your answer. Didn't see it, but that was the answer. And Jesus answers them on their terms. Okay, only God can forgive sins. That's good. Let's just write that down. Here is a spiritual truth. Only God can forgive sins. Absolutely true. Your sins are forgiven. What should you think about me now? Well, they're not willing to do that. So he says, fine. Only God can heal a lame man. Was medicine healing lame men? Was there a doctor who could do it? So he says, rise and walk. And the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And this fact explains in chapter 2 and verse 13, the crowds increased in number. And in chapter 2 and verse 15, all these sinners come to Matthew's house. You see what's happening now are people really want to be healed from their sin. And that's why you bring people to God. My, my friends, can I, can I just tell you something? If you are in Christ, all of your sins are forgiven. Washed. I heard an old preacher give this exercise to a Christian in his church. Go home and write down every sin you can remember ever committing. Write it down. However long it takes, however many pages of paper it takes. And when you finish, burn it. They're gone. I used to sing the little children's song, gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. Buried in the deep and in my heart's a song. Right? In the deepest sea they're buried. G-O-N-E, gone. They're all gone, folks. This is, this is the beauty of what Jesus does for us. I actually know Christians who don't like this truth, which is weird. 
they, they think we should live with this, some sort of harbinger of evil to come upon us. So we've got to live with this dark cloud over us all the time that we're still sinners. I know I'm still a sinner. And the Bible talks about that. And there are some things I'm supposed to do of constantly repenting of my sin. Even confessing my faults sometimes to others. Those things are there. But you don't live under a reality of unforgiven sin. I was sitting in a pastor's conference. I've told you this before. I had a man down the way, a pastor of a church in Asheville, and we were talking about forgiveness of sin. And so I was sitting there going, I can't believe this guy is actually holding to the idea that a Christian can have unforgiven sin. And I said to the man, I said, well, let me ask you a question, friend. Let's say I get angry. I go home and I pick up a pan. And I don't like what my wife cooked. I pick up a pan and I, bam, whack her in the head. And she's down. She's gone. You know, eyes just kind of, you know, gone. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, those eyes. And then I feel terrible for what I've done. And so I eat the poisonous food she made. No, I'm kidding. I, 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 uh, I go and I, I find some means and I kill myself. But I'm a Christian and I go to heaven, right? Absolutely. So what happens to that sin? Was I forgiven of it? He goes, I don't know. That's what the judgment seat of Christ is for. Can I encourage you to go back to school? <laughs> All our sins are gone. That is the reality. I was, I was talking to a bunch of college kids a couple of years ago during the summer who were counseling at a camp. And we were talking through this idea of sin being gone. And they were trying to argue that sins aren't gone. They're not all forgiven. And they didn't like it then when I said, fine, you're a bunch of Catholics. <laughs> That's Catholicism. Catholicism, I, I sin, I got to go do something about it. Say so many Hail Marys, make confession to the priest. I got to do all these things. I need to get forgiveness again. No, I repent of that sin. I turn from it. But I've been forgiven. Because I've been to Jesus. I'm not broken anymore. I'm the Humpty Dump that he put back together again. Only he could do it. But he did. And so I'm whole. This is the reasoning, folks. I, you can go to those passages in Isaiah that talk about unbelief, unbelieving Israel and to try to apply them to the Christian life. They don't apply, but you can try to do that. You could sing a song like Whiter and Snow and try to apply that to the Christian life, even though that's a gospel song. You can do that. But my friends, here's the reasoning. If you come, if you really embrace brokenness like the blogs are trying to say you do, if you really embrace it, here's the reasoning you go through. I am broken. I come to Jesus. He makes me whole again. But you always have to come back with, He makes me whole. And so how do you really leave Jesus? Rejoicing. Letting everybody know, I was lame. He made me walk. I was blind. He made me see. I was deep in sin, a worm and worse than any man. But his grace has made me whole. And that's what salvation does. He's the healer of your soul. Now, I can tell you this. There are Christians who, because of not following Christ like they should, because of living in certain sins they shouldn't be living in, feel broken. I get that. I totally understand that. We send the kids to camp. 
They hear all this preaching. You know, the high school kids hear all this preaching, hard preaching on sin. And because they are like Samuel, haven't discerned the Lord's voice yet, they think, I got to get saved again. You know, you find people getting saved every summer at camp. Well, that happens. Okay, I understand that. It's because they feel broken. But my friends, the blessedness of Christ is once you come to him, you are not broken. You're whole. You're healed. There is no story in any place in Scripture or outside of Scripture where any man that Jesus healed became unhealed again. The guy with who's blind didn't go the next day. I'm wait a minute. I gotta I gotta go back down to that pool and put some more. I gotta find Jesus. He's gotta spit on my eyes again. I mean something. You know this is this isn't working. The lame man didn't get up and run around and then go, oh, I think I pulled something. Hold on. And then he's down on the ground, and the next day he can't walk again. That didn't happen. The whole thrust of Scripture is that I am broken in sin. Man is destroyed by it. But when you come to Jesus, he makes you whole. Can I make some applications to this? If you don't know Christ, would you not come to him? He'll make you whole. And if you're here and you are being broken by sin because you're not a believer, come to him. He will not cast you out. He will accept you as one of his. He is the only one who can heal you. And maybe we should follow Jesus' own example here. As believers, we should pray for sinners to be converted. Maybe it would be good if you had an unsaved loved one or an unsaved friend or co-worker that maybe once in a while you lost a little sleep just to pray for him to come to faith. That might be a healthy activity for you. We should pray for sinners to be converted. We should preach the gospel every chance we get, every opportunity we have, and prioritize with other people the forgiveness of sins. Can I tell you something, friends? You should be a forgiven, forgiving person because you've been a forgiven person. What does it say to our culture about our Christ when we're not forgiving of other people. You know, when you're sitting at the light and somebody honks real hard at you, and I mean, it just turned green. It's still kind of in between the red and green. It's flickering. And that guy is in a big hurry and he lays on the horn and you think, okay, I'm going to roll down my window and I'm going to shout at that guy. What, what does that tell him about my Christ? Does it shade he's a forgiven, giving person? That Jesus will forgive your sins if I won't forgive? Let me tell you something. In the counseling world, there's a whole thing about how abuse victims have to forgive their abuser. I do think that's true. You may not forgive them verbally because the abuse, abusive person may never ask for forgiveness, but you have to forgive in your heart. I totally get that. But, but in the secular counseling world, they hear of these stories and they go, this is crazy. Why would you ever tell an abused person, they have to forgive their abuser. It's because that's what Christians do. They forgive people. And so maybe I pray for sinners to be converted. I prioritize the gospel and I prioritize forgiveness. And then realizing that I myself are forgiven, can I just ask you, will you not rejoice in it? Should you not leap in your heart and praise God in your heart for what he's done for you? Should it not be the first thing on your lips? Listen, you're no longer going to bother Jesus. He's not going to tell you anymore, don't tell people about me. That stopped. He's now saying, tell people about me. Will you not tell people, hey, let me tell you how great life is. You walk into work tomorrow and just out of the blue say, isn't it a beautiful day? 
Isn't it great what the Lord has done? Isn't life good? And people are looking at you like you're nuts. How can you believe that? Because all my sins are forgiven. Then they'll really think you're crazy. But you can just rejoice. You can be in great joy over what Jesus is doing in your life and what he's done for you. And you can show that joy to other people instead of being down in the mouth and sour. Uh, we have an election coming up in, a, in about a month. And you know what I'm ready to read? About how all the Christian conservatives are all sad because this person didn't get elected or that person didn't get elected or maybe this party still holds the White House or that party still has this or that. I'm going to read all these news stories and all I'm going to think are you are the people who are supposed to rejoice. America's not going to last forever. I'm glad for that because I'm praying for his kingdom to come. America's not going to last forever. No. But I'm not going to live dour and sad. I'm going to be happy because he has made me glad. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time in your word today. I ask that you would please use this to change us. Change us, Lord, to be people who recognize the wonderful truth that we are forgiven in Christ. That we can go out and tell others of this beautiful truth. Before I finish praying, keep your head bowed. Let me ask you, do you know Christ as your Savior? If you're here today and you say, Pastor, I don't. I don't know him. I want to pray for you. Don't be ashamed or embarrassed. You say, Pastor, I need healing. I need spiritual healing from, from Christ because I'm lost. If you're like that, I want to pray for you. Anybody at all, slip up your hand. I want to pray for you. Anybody at all. You say, Pastor, I'm healed. Do you feel healed? Maybe there are sins in your life that are making you feel broken. Can I encourage you to repent of those sins? And can I encourage you who are healed to remember that you're healed and to live like a healed person? To go out from here and not embrace your brokenness, embrace your healing. Because that's what you have in Christ. Father, we pray that you'd please take and change us because of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet. I'm going to ask the pianist to play a hymn of invitation. You know somebody who's lost. Every single person in here knows somebody lost. While she plays, you pray for that person.